0: Welcome to Cowen Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: I'm Yaron Werber, biotech analyst at Cowen. I'm very excited to be joined by Bezad Agazade from Avora Capital Advisors and Alex Denner from Sarissa Capital Management in this episode called Unlocking Value from the Inside. We will discuss how value is unlocked working from the inside as board members, chairpersons, active investors, and how decisions are made at the board level. Bezat founded Avor Capital Advisors in 2010. He manages Avor's $4 billion portfolio of public and private life sciences investments. He was chairman of Immunomedics until its acquisitions by Gilead in 2020. Before Voro, Bezod has a successful track record as an investor and management consultant. Alex founded Sarissa Capital Management in 2013. Previously, he was a healthcare portfolio manager at Icon Capital, Morgan Stanley, and Viking Global. He has been instrumental in the sales of implone Systems, Genzymes, Forest Labs, Medimmune, Amalyn, Ariad, The Medicines Company, Bioverative, and Identix. Both Bayzad and Alex sit on several corporate boards. Gentlemen, great to have you with us. And thanks so much for joining us.
2: Great to see you as well.
1: So we have a a lot to talk about. And I got to tell you personally, this is a a podcast and I'm very excited. Number one, I've known both of you for a long period of time. I have a lot of respect for you. And it's great, too, that you can both come together. You have such a complementary and in many ways overlapping experience. You've both been really involved in catalyzing change, really from the outside, right? Coming into companies. Uh, both as pseudo operators at the board uh, level, as chairpersons, as board members, and certainly as activist investors. And I would really argue in all cases, these companies really needed that external push, You know that pressure an alternative view to look at what's possible and look at, at fresh insights. Um, Alex, you, you're chairperson at the medicines company and at Ariad and Bayezad, obviously, at, at Immunomedics. Maybe Alex, to you first, what are the biggest challenges to effective the to effective change
2: when you came in, what did you notice? So every every situation is is different. I'm sh- I, some of I will feel the same way. It's um, that said, there are a lot of kind of commonalities as 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 to your question. Look, you know, I think you know one of the things we look for is to reduce bureaucracy. You know, to empower people, um, to allow. You know if there if there are 10 committees, you can probably do it with less than three committees. If there are three committees, you probably don't need any committees. You know, that's the kind of thinking that I like to bring to the company. Because usually we're in a situation where the where the people who are actually doing the work are doing a good job and you know there, there's there there's value. I mean we're you know we're investing in the company because there's there's some value there. There's something that's uh you know creating value and they're either squandering the the cash flows that come for that or they're managing the business so poorly that the value is not not kind of easily is, is not transparent easily transparent. Um, so it's just kind of like there's a lot of stuff that comes to it, but you know basically the, the process of fixing the companies is more or less around eliminating bureaucracy. you know and there's a, there's a lot of subparts to that the other thing I, I think is important to mention is to focus people on the mission of the company too. You know, mm. some companies can end up doing 40 different things, many of which do not uh, contribute to creating shareholder value. And you got to get everybody focused on, you know, kind of, the mission is to create value. And here, here is the one or two or three ways that we're doing it.
1: So it's focus on, on key, key imperatives and uh, reducing bureaucracy. Based on what, what did you think?
0: Yeah, your own, um, For me, it was um, it started with a, a tremendous fortune of being able to assemble rather quickly uh, a board that not only complemented my vision and my skills, but also allowed others to buy into what we had thought would be potential for the, the potential of the company. Um, that got us going, and from there, it was really building a team assembling at one talent at a time, uh, folks that you can really trust to carry out your vision and then allowing them the freedom to go and execute. Uh, and then on my, from, from my own, uh, on my own part, I had to make sure that I was following through with my promises that I made to the organization that people could see that I'm living the life, leading the path, and ultimately just really just showing that I care and, and being there for them, uh, so a lot on the human resources side. That's something you're going to hear, I think, a lot from me, uh, which is very different to how I thought about the world before I wandered into an organization.
1: Yeah. So, you, so you really <laughs> focused on the operational side, yeah, people side, and the leadership side. Um, you know, and obviously each each role was was a little different. What What was the biggest challenge, um, Alex? Maybe for you as I'm looking at, as I'm thinking about Ariad or I'm thinking a lot of the companies and we'll talk about some of the ones you've been involved in the medicines company. Um, you were essentially taking on from, you know, a strong, durable CEO who was there beforehand and the company needed to go in the right direction.
2: What were some of the challenges that you needed to tackle first? So often those situations, um, and each one is, is unique, but you know, um, in the, in like in the, in the, you know, say in Ariad, the situation was, there was, uh, you know, kind of a, a board in place that in my view was not really, you know, kind of representing shareholders, they were sort of working for the CEO, and that's my opinion. Um, And uh, that's obviously not their jobs, right. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, you, you encounter in a lot of these situations is weak boards, boards that, you know, kind of forget their responsibility to you know that they 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 work for the owners they work for the shareholders and um, the management teams are hired in order to in order to accomplish the goals that that you know the owners decide are the right goals uh, and when you get a situation where there's the many, many many principal agent issues right where the, mm. the 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 principal is the sort of owner the agent is the the person in charge and sometimes there are things that are good for the agents that aren't good for the principals and you know that was that was that's a, issues that we tackle with almost every uh, situation we get involved with on the activist side with this these divergences. In some cases, those divergences can can be very big, mm. and you know you need to practically kind of change out a lot of directors to do that. Um, and you know some of the things that you know we've seen over time, uh, it's sort of it's sort of you know you could you know if somebody made a Saturday Night Live episode about these things happening in corporate boardrooms, you you know, I wouldn't believe it, but they actually do, you know, these absurd things like occur. You know, we've had directors, um, you know, been threatened with it, all kinds of things happen, you know. So um, it really is kind of, you know, kind of coming into a situation knowing, you know, what the fundamental change that's required is and just pushing for that and, and knowing that there's going to be Lots of hiccups on the along the way. And usually it's going to involve changing directors and usually it's going to involve changing managements. Yeah. Now, that's... sometimes you, you know, you can have management teams that will that maybe they maybe the CEO is a is a good is a good person, but just not in the right role, right? So you can sort of switch him or her into a role that that you know kind of is 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 optimal, but you know, getting good leaders who understand. You know, their job is is super super important yeah yeah
1: well i'm going to come back and touch on, on one of the points uh, based on what about you what were the some of the key challenges for you
0: uh i think one of the key learnings i mean i agree with the key challenges alex said getting the good people the right people one of the learnings and everyone tells you this um any recruiter would tell you this the minute you feel you don't have the right people is the last time you should think about that and the first time <laughs> you should take action
2: mm. it's
0: never too soon to part ways with someone that's not the right person mm. and you can affect a lot of change a lot quicker if you act decisively and you could do a lot of damage if you sit on that decision because invariably you're gonna once that thought crosses your mind it's probably something you're gonna go through with and the longer you wait the more you're gonna regret it that i think was one of the ultimately led to some of the changes we made. They may not look popular from the outside. They may even increase anxiety. So While it doesn't seem like the right decision for outsiders, I would always, uh, when I see these changes, I sort of put myself in that shoe and say, maybe that is actually something really good that just happened that I just never knew was mm-hmm. a risk. Um, that I think is one of the, when you talk about making changes to catalyze change, that I think stands out for me. If
2: That's a great point.
1: Yeah. And are you talking about the board level? Or are you talking about the senior both. level of both? Yeah.
0: I would say both because, you know, uh, uh, I I had the fortune to cross a path with some of the boards that we have brought us are along the way and very thoughtful folks. But at times it is almost a signal you want to send that you have to make a change because otherwise you're, some people will hold on to legacy views, uh, maybe even question it, undermine it. Uh, even if it's inadvertent, even if it's not intentional necessarily. And it's a lot easier to make a clean cut and start over again if that turns out to be. But on the other hand, even on the management side, you want to hold on to some legacy people because they have institutional knowledge that you benefit from as well. Mm. Uh, It's striking that right balance, but when you know it's the right time, it's acting decisively. Right. Can
1: I, let's uh, touch up on on Alex. You you mentioned um, the role of the board is to, oversee the CEO and not work for the CEO. Uh, in reality, when you go into a public company that's potentially haven't had a lot of success or is stagnating, the board usually has been assembled by the CEO over many, many, many years. They're right. friends. They sit on each other boards. They're all on the same network. And they all, they all tend to have groupthink a little bit. What what are what are the steps to then make that change? Because you got you got to get them on board. You're coming in as an outsider. There's probably going to be barriers. There's probably going to be a few people who want to work
2: with you. And you got to kind of mesh everything together. So how does that work? Yeah, no, that that's an excellent point. And that's, you know, when we come into a situation, it's all, you know, when we come in as activists, it's usually because the company's underperforming, and exactly that problem exists, right? So the the directors now just as an aside just kind of just to start you know kind of at, at a high uh, you know kind of high altitude and, and and dive in here you know most people who are on boards are good people right and the the vast majority of directors do not have nefarious intentions to do the wrong thing or to to act inappropriately the vast majority there are some that do have those you know we've come across people like that too but but you know, the vast majority of people, you know, kind of want to do the right thing. But if you think about it, on a public company board, the individual director, um, he or she doesn't usually own stock and usually doesn't have the time or resources to do independent work as to sort of assess the company. So you know, I always put in the language of like a widget factory just to kind of, you know, Sort of make it, you know, di- distance it a little from, you know, kind of a biotech thing. But, you know, the CEO decides, okay, we're going to build a new widget factory. And he says, okay, this widget factory is going to cost a billion dollars. And you hire, you know, some fancy uh, consulting companies to make super nice PowerPoint slides that show you this billion dollars will be the best billion dollars the company's ever spent, blah, 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 blah. blah. And the board, the, dire- the directors all come to a meeting, you know, having seen this in the board materials a few days before, but really having no background off it, on it if it's the first time it's been mentioned. And then um, they're expected to sort of, you know, kind of opine on that. Now, if they haven't done, you know, kind of any thoughtful work and they usually don't, it's not their fault, but they usually don't have the time or the inclination because they, they, you know, they don't own hundreds of millions of stock usually, so it doesn't, it's not worth uh, hiring their own consultants. They're just gonna more or less take the party line there and just go with the idea that the, the, the billion dollars is the right place to, put, to you know, invest in this widget factory. Um, and the shareholder doesn't really, it sounds bizarre to say, but often the shareholder, the owner of that money, the billion dollars in this example, doesn't sit at the table really right and um it's sort of easy for people to say well the management team's aligned around this idea of building a new widget factory and you know it sounds like a good idea and they made a nice presentation so let's go ahead and do that you know now if you go out and talk to the people that own the stock they'd they'd be like oh my god there's so many other important things to do with that money right um but there isn't a mechanism for most directors to even hear that Right. So that's an important, important starting point. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make this uh, particular discussion too long. I don't want to, you know, drag on your own, but just that I think that's an important starting point on, you know, kind of how you start with directors. So most of them are not bad people, but they're sort of easily kind of, um, they easily fall into the company line because there is nobody that comes up at the board meeting after the The widget Factory presentation says here's the counterpoint, this is why we shouldn't do that I have another I have another use for the billion dollars that very rarely, if ever Mm. happens. yeah right so then you say okay well you have to sort of create as activists, we have to kind of create that what we call Socratic dialogue. Mm. Right, and so we have to have that Socratic dialogue where people say wow there's two sides to this. We can spend the money here, or we could spend it somewhere else, or we could give it back to shareholders, or we could do something else with it. It's not just, you know, that the widget factory is the only solution. And at the same time, you have to do that in a way, you know, with with this assumption that most people are not bad actors, in a way that doesn't um, rub their noses in the sort of what what we would pre what are the mistakes of the past, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a balancing act. We sort of have to be respectful to the decisions that have been made in the past that we probably think were the wrong decisions, but they made them. So you want to point out that they're wrong, but you don't want to rub their noses in and say this is terrible because then they're, they're less likely to kind of work instructively. You just want to get them to work constructively on the future and yeah. have a Socratic debate about that. Yeah. And it takes a little time, but usually we can kind of get there. Um, with taught you know with talking with directors now the the vet there are many variables determine how quickly that happens and one of the important ones is how you know vociferous the ceo is and if he or she has just kind of got one way it's my way as a highway type person and they have a bunch of directors that have been working with them working with him or her for 20 years and you know their kids know each other and there's all this kind of personal connections, then that's a much harder kind of, you know, system to break into. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where we would look to kind of bring on more people onto the board, you know, more quickly. Yeah, Be- Beza, can, can you talk about, the boards
1: dual track the future? You know, something we, we talked a lot about on Wall Street, right, having a backup plan, plan for success, but, you know, prepare for success, but plan for failure. What
0: happens in boards?
1: Okay. I mean, I think,
0: um, you know the experience that we're talking about in my case with the medics. Uh, it's kind of, you know, we're not talking about a real sophisticated or large business with multiple outs. So I don't really think uh, you really plan for sort of backup to the backup to the backup. You're you're head down executing, recognizing their risks, and it's mostly the focus of the board. In our instance, was ensuring that we have contemplated all aspects as much as we could, uh, prepared for it, be vigilant and monitor and and, and, and and react if anything goes wrong. Of course, you look at the cash, the one-way budgets, et cetera, to ensure that you have the ability to, to get to the finish line. Uh, but I don't think uh, other than sort of as part of just standard course, Maybe recognizing that things may not go according to plan in a severe way, there's not much you can really do uh, in in a company the size uh, that we were now. Had we remained independent, and the topic of pipeline and and, and sort of the next generation uh, programs and versus versus various strategies that we're contemplating, if those would have continued to mature, there would have certainly been a place in time for these kinds of conversations around how do you manage risk, balance it do mm-hmm. certain things as backup but honestly we in our instance we was sort of one task at hand uh, with 95% of focus dedicated to that and, and the rest was sort of kept for the, for another day which fortunately or unfortunately never came
1: yeah and and alex from from your vantage point in in big more complicated multi-product companies how much planning do they do for 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 the backups for the
2: unexpected uh, very little, not an, and, you know, not enough. So I think it's very hard for a company to have multiple plans, right? So that the, there's a mission and, you know, this is, we're going to take, you know, we're going to take this hill metaphorically, or we're just, you know, we're going to get a certain level of revenues or we'll get the drug through phase three or whatever. There's a mission and, and almost all goals of almost all corporate uh, and almost all public companies in corporate America, which, by the way, I think the whole goal setting thing is is a bad uh, is, is not is not constructed well, but almost all goals are just kind of uh, unitary. You know, there there aren't sort of like, oh, there's a backup plan and or if this happens, that happens. And they have Bayesian, you know, sort of uh, trees that it just it's just too complex from a from a from a goal setting perspective. It should be done more, but it isn't. It's not, it's not practical.
1: Um, Beza, let me, let me ask you, Pharma is sitting on sizable cash positions. And, and if you looked at deal volume last year, it was actually up year over year from 2020, but total deal amount was down, obviously Celgene or, or an Alexion kind of m- sways the needle in either direction or a, a big deal.
0: Why are we seeing more deals now? Yeah, I mean, I think my view is there, there's been a bit of a perfect storm that's allowed the farmers to sit on the sidelines or perhaps encourage them or perhaps even force them to sit on it. It, it. Whether it's tied to the political backdrop of the uncertainties around drug pricing reform and posturing by the FTC where there was going to be added scrutiny for any pharma, pharma merger for sure, and perhaps even pharma biotech merger. Um, but also some company-specific uncertainties around commercial prospects of a given asset, the competitive positioning of those assets. And of course, what we've all been hearing up until very recently, perhaps not as much anymore, is the inflated valuations of these assets. Um, I would also say, however, that the sector hasn't really done much uh, in terms of helping themselves, uh, given the series of relatively high-profile large setbacks late stage setbacks that we including very very recently experienced and I think those all give management team and business development teams time or room for pause but at the same time I'm sure you're going to be probably talking about the outlook I think they can only wait so long given the outlook that they're facing but but that perfect storm I would say is also coming a little bit to an end because we are getting some resolution, uh, perhaps not what people were expecting completely, but you know, drug pricing, I think there is a general consensus that it will be manageable if anything even materializes. The FDA change in leadership seems to be palatable for the industry um, and various other, even the FTC, has not really flexed much of a muscle when it came to biopharma transactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think perhaps those reasons are also the excuses that have kept people on the sidelines are beginning to vaporize or be fully addressed. Valuation certainly has been addressed in the past few weeks. Yeah. Um, Sadly. And, and whether, yes, after, uh, how this then, you know, from here on plays out, I think um, it, it might take a turn from here on.
1: Yeah, I've changed my screen color. So when the stocks go down, they're actually green now,
0: looking a lot better <laughs> He sent the snapshot.
1: Everything's green today, I'll tell you that. Um, Alex, question for you on, are, are, are we are seeing, again, I guess you can argue a, a good amount of deals or just maybe not seeing as many big ones. Is there, the reason maybe that we're not seeing even more deals, is it valuation still or has that been the issue or is there just a, a Darth or a lack
2: of willing sellers? I think Bézard hit it right on um, it, it, you know, in all those factors. I would sort of double emphasize the valuation bond though. And you know we we just joked that you know sadly they're down. You, you know, you might argue it's it, it's obviously it's obviously disruptive, but it might actually be good for you know for for society and for humanity and for for the biotech industry, you know, to kind of get valuations to be. A little bit more reasonable I, you know in my view you know things had gotten to a place where companies perceived their cost of capital to be zero right you know uh we dealt with a, a, a bunch of small companies who i think are great people with great technology right great people with great technology and it was kind of like okay we're going to do the b round on you know to the first tuesday of february and then then we'll do the c and then we'll ipo and you know, we're not sure if we're going to IPO on Wednesday of April, you know, that kind of thing, right? And people were really kind of talking that way, because I mean, we heard this. And um, as we all know, the three of us, uh, you know, it just been having seen this industry for a while, that's not how things work. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of cracked. And I think that that's good, actually. Um, it, it, it does cause pain, it causes pain in our portfolio causes pain, you know, in, in many companies, and uh, I don't mean to suggest that it's a, it's a painless thing, but it, it it brings things in into a little bit more into reasonableness where you're gonna see more collaborations, more M&A deals. So I think, you know, in this coming time, there'll be a lot more of those. Now, what does ha- tend to happen when valuations go up a lot? Companies for a while remember, right? It, whether it was a private company or a public company, you know, if your stock was at 100 and then it fell to 40, I'm kind of like, well, I remember it was 100. So, if some if if some big giant pharma comes and offers me, you know, 80, which probably is a great deal in, in an absolute sense if I DCF my business, I'm kind of like, well, geez, a little while ago was 100. I probably should shouldn't settle for less than 125. You know, and that that does take a little while. So, but I think that that. The volatility that we're getting now remind, you know, kind of causes that to fade relatively quickly. So, yeah. you know, I have no, I have no predictive capabilities in terms of what the market's going to do. But I do think um, that you know, there the, the the large companies need product. There's immense, wonderful innovation occurring in small companies. There's and it it it's, it it should happen that there would be more collaborations in M and And by the way, there's a lot of small companies that are that are replicating, you know, kind of functions that would just be more efficient if it would be done together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and in case people listen to this uh, podcast in 20 years, uh, just so you know, it's uh, February 24th. Russia literally (laughs) just invaded Ukraine and the stock market has been collapsing for about four months. So this is kind of where we are. (laughs) To put this in context, (laughs) this podcast would have been very different four months ago. Um, That's right maybe when at the board level, how do companies decide, is there a real decision tree process to figuring out, hey, we wanna stay independent versus no, our goal is to sell. Does that go go on or is a decision to sell triggered by a phone call, obviously an incoming approach or how does the process come to be based on that with you?
0: Yeah, I mean, in our instance, um, we knew exactly what needed to get done uh, when we initially took over, which was some very tactical, critical, tactical steps with respect to compiling a BLA, filing, manufacturing challenges that I think everyone understands, um, commercial, uh, build, team, all the elements that go into that and launching a drug. Up until that point, it was, we could sort of sketch it out from a resourcing standpoint, from a capital needs standpoint. And I would <coughs> perhaps argue, especially once we got a little momentum, that we were probably in the best position to do that as opposed to handing it over to a new parent and allowing them to take over. It was, it's easier to sort of land the plane that you took off in and you have a good understanding of all the buttons uh, than handing it over mid flight. However, as the closer we got to that finish line with respect to getting ready for commercial and and then obviously getting the approval and and launching the drug, the focus starts shifting towards what's next, where do we expand geographically, where do we do with the pipeline collaborations, which we had signed up for, but then the execution aspects of that did start to look quite daunting. Hmm. And I think there comes a point, in our case, it was very natural, uh, where you just start really almost seeing that challenge, that that wave coming, and and saying, look, I could just about get to this point, but from here on, this requires a next level of of competency, of infrastructure, of um, tools that we had to continue to invest in. And and really, the further you go, the the, the more punishing it could be if you miss a step. And in in parallel to that, obviously, farmers became very interested in the asset, and while everyone shared the common view of the potential, they start seeing the challenges for a small companies to execute versus what they could accomplish if they took it over. Mm. And that's where the conversations almost naturally evolve from a partnership and uh, you know, whether it's geographic or, or otherwise, to well, this requires a, a heavier lift, a, a bigger mandate, and isn't it make more sense for us to take over? And, Obviously, valuation comes into play, and mm. we got certainly what we felt was a fair, fair price, and, and, mm. and the rest is history.
1: Yeah, Alex, and you've been involved in multiple, multiple deals: Ariad, Metco, Genzyme, Medimune. Um, I think in many of these cases, what's so interesting uh, is uh, Imclone. You know, I was I was covering these stocks usually <laughs> with a negative one of the only sell ratings and maybe not so popular. Um, and most of the time you prove me wrong because at the end the stock would go up, you know, it would be painful for a while, but it would work at the end. Um, hopefully I wasn't always at a sell at that point. But with with your how does that
2: decision come to be? It's time to sell. So when first of all, when we when we make an investment, um, we rarely, if ever, kind of the, the main plan is to sell the company. Right? We, we make an investment because we think that the DCF, if the company is run properly, the company is run for the benefit of the shareholders is much higher than the price we're paying for it. Right? That's why we make an investment. And whether there's, a, whether there's a, an, another buyer that's gonna buy the whole company or not is, is an interesting discussion, but it's not sort of part of the fundamental analysis that leads us to make an investment decision. Now, just to cut to the chase, empirically, more than half of the deals we do end up getting sold in some way to like a, a larger company or a farmer or whatever um, so it's a kind of common way that value is created but it's sort of we, we don't get into it with the with the plan so we what we basically we have this thesis that you know we look for 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 stocks that are run that the DCF that that when that they're Run their capital allocation is bad and their operations are bad, such that if they're fixed and they're run in the interest of shareholders, their DCF will be meaningfully higher. Like generally, we say more than two x. You know, depends on the underlying risk, but something like that. And then, sort of, you know, it takes a while to get control. of The common Bazar did an awesome job uh, with Immunemics. That was that was a, a a a plus kind of situation. You know, just. You know, kind of uh, getting control so quickly, but that's hard to do. And that that's that was partly a situation of how dug, how deep those people had dug themselves into into a mess before you you know kind of took over and things. And you know, just the practical reality is that you know probably we're going to take an investment, we're going to get a a couple of board seats, and we're going to work with the company. And if and you know we think about it like a multi year process, we don't think about an investment will pay off in months it just if it does and it does sometimes it does actually reasonably frequently but that's something that's that's great, but we would never assume that that would happen. So then, uh, then it becomes you know you, you fix the company, you know and. Um, you go about fixing the company and that you just improve the DCF and our models are such we're only investing in companies that we can do that now all that said. In many instances, the DCF is higher to a larger company that maybe is already participating in the in, in the same therapeutic area, right? So one of you know one of the areas that we're particularly interested in now is things like you know cardiovascular, metabolic, um, you know primary care, gastroenterology. These are diseases, you know. Unfortunately, cardiovascular disease is number one cause of death in the United States, but but it's not kind of, uh, we think it's a very interesting area for research, but it's not as sexy as some areas that are
0: mm-hmm. have much
2: less, you know, kind of morbidity and mortality. And that's because of, you know, that's just kind of how the, the industry goes up and down on certain things and, and also has to do with the commercialization that's required in the large trials. And we know why those things are, but um, so we basically will build a business you know, a great business to be there. And then, you know, what often happens is, you know, it's kind of like that, that little aphorism, you know, a, a great, you know to comp- a great companies are, are, are um, bought as, a, you know, like whether they're bought or sold, right? You know, kind of, because, you know, we, we don't actively try to sell it. We're just open to selling it if it's above our risk adjusted val- assessments as, as a value. And when the risk becomes lower, for in other words, after we've fixed some of the underlying problems, the the, the value, the, the risk is lower to a pharma company, which are very risk averse buyers, right? The buyers in the in healthcare are very risk averse. They don't want to buy messy things by and large. They want things that are all clean and nice. They might even overpay a little from the perspective of the owner of the, the business because they have other strategic there are other strategic implications for them for instance if you sell a cardiovascular or let's say a cardiology product to a company that's already in cardiology the incremental cost of selling a new drug may be the cost of the brochures yeah. for the one drug you know mm-hmm. so um so we basically build businesses not planning to sell them but kind of maybe hoping that 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 is one of the possible outcomes yeah and it, and it does occur a lot but it's very important, I think, as an investment strategy to not sort of have all the chips on that kind of uh, outcome because you can't you can't control it and control especially timing. Right,
1: um, Bayside, you're investing in private and publics. So you you recently started a VC fund about a year year and a half ago. or So, which ones are easier? Which ones are more fun? Which ones are more efficient at, uh, at shareholder value? And I'm, I'm not talking about February take february 2021 out of the equation everything was fun everything was easy everything went up <laughs> private and public so let's let's, uh, let's talk about that quarter
0: i was gonna say tech but even that's not true anymore <laughs> i mean we've been obviously we have a much longer history and uh certainly also in terms of yield volume on the public side um on the private side we're perhaps because we want to limit our time commitment and and be very thoughtful where we are going to get active. the the number that you can take on is very, very few at a time. So I don't share the view that you can broadly deploy capital in private companies and and pepper it in, in a large number and still be thinking of yourself as someone who's really creating value. Capital is easy to come. I was until recently. Uh, I do view the private investing as an opportunity to bring more than just capital to the table, but that's very time intensive. Mm. Uh, I think they're fundamentally two different. um, You you ask which one is more fun. It's always the other one that you're not working on. (laughs) So that's that one. Uh, Easier, probably also the other way, uh, because once you're inside a company, you really realize the challenges, the operational aspects of it, uh, which I think are just fundamentally misunderstood and underappreciated. Whereas from on the public side, when we invest as passive investors, if you will, as equity uh, shareholders, uh, you don't really get broadly into the nitty gritty and you almost entrust that to happen and you're just looking for the results and the meeting of the various milestones and catalysts if they go your way. Um, So I think they're arguably that while they should be very, very similar on the one hand, just because you can only control so much in one instance versus the other, they tend to actually be quite different in investing style and, and effort. And I think they're just very different. I, I, I wouldn't say one is easier. Uh, and I wouldn't say one is more fun. They, they just bring a different uh, vantage point. And you, I mm. think the hope for us is actually more on the side of learning from both and becoming better on one side, learning from the other and vice versa. Yeah. So that, that actually
1: leads me into the next question. What are some of the biggest learnings for you that helped you become a better investor from serving as a board member or as a chairman?
0: I think uh, one of the things I I, I don't want to beat the same point or uh, or hit on the same point over and over again, but I think the the human resources aspect was something that I historically neglected. I always thought of an investment in our space as more investment in science. And if I believed in the science, the rest would find its way and sort its way out. And I have come to realize perhaps too late in my career uh, that that is probably not necessarily the right way of going about it and perhaps more emphasis needs to be placed on the, on the people side. So I, I look for things like, how long has the team worked together? Have they navigated a challenging time together? Have they stuck together and then successfully seen it through? That certainly is important. I, I do look at operational execution. Uh, I mean, I happen to be uh, acting as the interim CEO or the CEO of Immunomedics right when COVID was hitting. Mm. And it was kind of interesting in hindsight, how I as a portfolio manager of the fund was thinking about the world versus as the operator of the company thinking about the world. I was there in our uh, warehouses asking questions like, do we have gloves? Do we have test tubes? Do we have what's happening to this patient or that shipment? One of the batches was meant to come from Italy on a plane. And that was right when Trump had stopped the international flights. Mm. And we were sitting there mapping a road route to get a truck from Italy to, I guess, Germany and then cross into UK, which still was allowed to fly for a few more days mm. to the US and then doing that in the cold chain with all the bells and whistles. That level of operational detail could really make or break a company. And if we hadn't done that in time, we couldn't met the badge testing or whatever the topic uh, du jour was, but it was very critical to, to get that done. Mm. That operational that focus on operational execution can sometimes really be make or break. And we as investors don't really have access to that. You can't really ask the question, hey, did you make your flight? You will not even know that there was a flight to be made. And often you might, even if you had the wherewithal to ask the question, you'll get the answer, oh, we don't comment on that publicly. Mm-hmm. So What do you do with that? But at least trying mm-hmm. to find ways to test if your team that you're investing in as, as a public investor, are they, do they demonstrate competency, are they aware? And I remember as the CEO, I was then as an investor asking the same question of all my portfolio companies. Hey, do you have any exposure to China? Because from what I hear, the supply chains are getting really difficult. And it was interesting to see different responses. Some CEOs were entirely dismissive of it. And um, some were uh, very acutely aware of what ramifications that might have. Yeah. I wouldn't, by the way, suggest that that ultimately translated into better outcomes for the folks that were closer. But it was just a different <laughs> vantage point um, that I just, frankly, would not have appreciated had I not had the opportunity to, to play that role. Yeah. Um,
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, my my one of my biggest learnings from when I left the sales side and was an operator interacting with companies and, and being on the operating side is. You know, how much of a different vantage point we have sitting on the on our side, you know, not outside the company of understanding what that company would look like over time and how little decisions and execution moments will be big triggers in, into where they end up in 18 months. The people on the ground rarely have that vantage point. They haven't set at the satellites, following, planning, analyzing maps and following journeys over and over and over again. And they tend to miss things which can have huge consequences. And to, to I totally agree with you. The sell side, the, the, the Wall Street, doesn't see that, sitting or are sitting. You know, Alex, what about you? What What were some of the, your biggest learnings, that made? Well, you- I
2: I just to, to, to agree. I can maybe say say a couple other things, but but just to agree with that, I think that's a it's a fundamental, really important point you guys are both making. I think you know, I've often found it interesting that you know. The cell side and you're on your, you know, when you're in the cell that you, you've been even from the first time you've been very, very good about understanding businesses holistically, but often it's just about the data right and you get you get really sophisticated analysis of clinical data. Um, and more sophisticated probably than the well sometimes in the company's analysis of it, but then. The whole, everything else. Well, can you make the drug? You know, who, who who is it going to be sold to? You know, all these kind of issues are sort of, you know, kind of just left up in the air. Um, so I think that that is uh, that's something that you know it it matters a lot to companies, and the successful companies kind of do it right. Um, in terms of learning, look, we've made many many mistakes and learned so many things. You know, I think um, you know one of the things that I I, I just realize now just I, uh, I, I mean this in a very kind of um, modest way, but, you know, never underestimate kind of how uh, we try never to underestimate how um, incompetent, you know, some of the decisions or how poorly thought out some of the, you know, quote unquote, important decisions that a company can be. So a company can make a decision. We're gonna, you know, we we've bought, we're gonna buy this new research area, or we're gonna we're gonna launch this product here, or we're gonna do this or that. And you know, you'd hope that, that 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 you know some of the smartest people at the company and hopefully even the world would have gotten a table and discussed mm-hmm. it. And and uh, I, I've yet to see that happen. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I you know, I gotta tell you, that's one of the things that I think we instill in, in all our in all our associates all the time is. Think about the luxury that we have, having a team of whatever it is, two, three, four, five, six people who just spend hundreds of hours, diligencing, thinking, stress testing, double guessing, talking to everybody else, getting consultants, debating what's gonna happen and, and, and what's the data set. And if you sit next to a company and they give you a completely different view, you better really understand what do they know that you don't? Because if you're thinking you're going south and they're telling you they're going north, and they can't explain to you why they're going north. They're probably ending <laughs> south. Uh, <Yeah. laughs> it took a long time until I was became an operator to understand that we have we have a luxury of time and resources that people inside a company don't really have.
2: That's right. funny enough,
1: or they have at their disposal, but they can't really conglomerate them together because that's not what that's not what it's about. They need to execute and do whatever they need to do that week, and that's their job. That's right. Want to ask maybe? Um, A final question, uh, Alex, maybe to you first and then Beza, to you, turnaround stories. When you look at at a story for other investors, what what are the the critical items that will really differentiate between a success and a disappointing item or disappointing uh, outcome with a turnaround story?
2: Okay, so turnaround stories are, you know, something we think a lot about. I think, you know, for for an individual investor, one has to have their estimate as sort of the DCF if if it's if it's you know kind of run properly, and also what is what needs to be done uh, you know an individual investor may not know all the details of what needs to be done, but big picture, you can usually figure it out, for instance, you have a company with three hundred million in revenues, and yeah, maybe it's going to grow to four hundred million over the next couple of years, but they have four hundred and seventy five million in s g and a that's not gonna work. Right. That's not going to work. I mean, unless there's something else there's, a, there's something else hidden in the basement of the company. Right. I mean, just simple things like that. And, and we all know there are many biotech companies that kind of like live on year by year like that. Right. Oh, oh, going to raise money and oh, don't worry. We got something new in phase one and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, looking fundamentally, does this make sense? You know, kind of is it something that can be fixed? And then metrics to follow. First of all, turnarounds take a long time, right? So I think one has to be patient with this kind of thing. You can get lucky and that somebody can come in and buy it or that you know, there can be a, some sort of a usually exogenous event that changes the value in a, in a positive discontinuous way. But it, one should plan for it to take time. And then it's looking at, you know is the board changing over? Are the management teams changing over? And are they setting up? Are they setting up goals and meeting those goals? You know, like, like you know, it's a, it's important questions for directors. What are the right metrics to track? You know, when there's a, when a problem comes to a company, I don't usually ask the management team what's your solution. I say, how are you going to track whether we're whether we're getting to the right solution or not. Hmm. And, you know, so I think that each person like as an individual, you know, individual investors can come up with that kind of stuff and we do that so it's all about you just track it look if. If there aren't a lot of changes on on the board, you might ask why, and it might be that their governance is such that that's kind of how it's going to be for a couple years and that could be totally fine, or it might be that there's unexpected resistance and. You know it'll take a little longer than people ex- people expect. Um, there, but you know, I think turnarounds when you have a competent management team can be great investments. I actually write like the 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 area of turnarounds as for to create you know to create alpha to create uh, value as one of the best because people will, people linearize everything and when things are not going well they linearize it kind of going down to zero and sometimes it's not that hard you know i'm speaking in a sort of a philosophical sense it's very difficult but maybe not yeah. not things that you don't have to invent new science to kind of fix it
1: and then based out for you what's your sweet spot investment wise
0: i mean on the topic of turnaround if that's where the focus of the question is i would say it's sort of i would start where alex actually ended which is can i see what the problem is and can that be readily fixed through i mean not to sound modest but i have repeatedly said what we did at immunomedics was just bring some competent execution to the table we didn't create the science that was all there before we got there it was good science it was well thought out it just wasn't done in the right way or executed or wasn't on a path to be executed and all we did is bring people that I thought had the wherewithal, we put the right capital behind it to enable them and then we saw it through along the way we might have made one or two good decisions along the way we got lucky more than once or twice, we also got a little unlucky, but you have to have a good understanding of what's wrong and is it almost worthwhile to try and fix it? because. The fix can take a lot longer. You need the right people. If you don't have them already in place, it's not going to. They're not waiting there to just come in and follow you right through that door. And for me, I think as appealing as the investing could be, I feel one offer underestimates the effort involved and overestimates the reward that could be had on the other side. Yeah. Now, in the one instance that I did it, I think um, the effort was certainly underestimated. Uh, and one of the things I was immediately thinking when we got seated at the board is, boy, what do we not know about this company? Which is not a heck of a lot. Everything is a, whatever management had chosen to share publicly, and who knew if all of that was exactly as advertised. Mm-hmm. Much of it turned out to be actually, uh, thankfully, uh, uh, correct. Uh, but nevertheless, you could have walked into a situation and the FDA communication was very different. The data might have looked slightly different to what we ultimately had. Um, and so, you have to really think about, is this gonna be worth the effort? Is the the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, And and I would, more often than not, because we get off an approach now that we've done it once, there's a view that we might be able to do it repeatedly, which is probably far from the truth as well. But one of the first questions I ask is, well, what do we get by doing this? What's the effort? Because I know what the effort is now that I've done it once. I just don't know what the reward is. And I think that it's not as straightforward. Yeah. If it's just a function of taking out costs out of an overinflated, um, you know, profitable company that's been validated by an Ernst and Young Price Waterhouse, um, that that might be easy to do in an Excel file, and maybe one can execute that. But if it's something that is a little bit more involved, I would not underestimate it, and as a result, that informs our decision of whether to invest or not. Yeah, let's. Uh, we're going to move to
1: my favorite part of the podcast. It's uh, a little personal touch and humor uh based maybe with you tell us one thing about you that no one knows <laughs> and it's totally a secret we'll just keep it between the three of us
0: yeah that's it. well i won't be between the three yeah. of I us put it
1: on spotify
0: <laughs> the one that comes to mind is when i walked in to take over as ceo of pneumatics i made a transition to the ceo that i brought in i thought i need to go in with some humor so i'll use the same so there's about 200 people that know this but uh one of the things that um, people don't know about me, it's its very hard for me to um, uh, to sneak up on people. I have this click in my ankle that gives it away as I'm approaching you. So I, I, I was, when I entered the room with management, so you never have to worry about me sneaking up on you. You'll know one <laughs> in advance that I'm around
1: the corner. It's funny because my, half my life, uh, my purpose on the earth is to scare my family. That's literally <laughs> what I do all day long. <laughs> you have a tiktok thing in your ankle.
0: I uh, essentially have <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. pre announcing my arrival. Yeah.
1: Um Alex <laughs> what about you? And I know you race
0: cars by the way.
2: So that Yeah. Uh but I well I was going to just mention I you know maybe this is a little bit more boring but I, I love chemistry. Um and I I have a you know kind of a home chemistry lab and I spend a lot of time I mean oh. nuclear engineering chemistry I spend a lot of time sort of you know not related to you know, experiments not related to, uh, uh, you know, creating therapeutics, but just, I, I just love, I, I collect elements. I, and I just find, uh, find, uh, you know, kind of, uh, elements in, in chemistry itself quite interesting. In in our office, um, and both of you are welcome to come and others, I think have, have seen it, although it just got installed not that long before the pandemic. So maybe it is a secret, but we got a big periodic table, like a large, large periodic table that's actually made of, um, we have a, a cube that's about, you know, so big of acrylic and inside we have a sample of the element oh, wow. and different salts and different, different compounds made from that element. Obviously, we don't have like plutonium and there's certain things that are kind of hard to obtain, but uh, we have a really kind of cool, cool collection there.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome.
2: I'm um, sure you put extra security around the gold box today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. seems to be increasing in value. Yeah, that, I mean, the, 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 uh, there is a little gold there, but the amount of gold is, is smaller than the value of the plastic that contains it, you know?
1: <laughs> my, I'll never forget, my, uh, one no. of my first classes in college was chemistry. And the professor showed up. He was wearing a starch white shirt and those glasses, thick black glasses from the 50s. It looked like mm-hmm. Larry Bod Melman, if you know who, who he is. The, uh, <laughs> the comedian. And he yeah. showed up in this huge auditorium, like, you know, everybody's pre-med probably. And, uh, and and the chemistry, you know, students, whoever got lost and couldn't get out. And he shed this long balloon and he showed up, didn't say a word, walked right to the center with his balloon, let the balloon go. And he had this long, long string and lit up a match and said, and he lit up the, 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 the bottom of the, the string and it started going up. And he goes, Chemistry. Is about makes chemicals until the damn thing explodes. <laughs> <The> <laughs> balloon blew up, and we're like, "Wow, we're awake now." Us <laughs> is gonna That's rock. Fabulous. It definitely rocked us.
2: <laughs> That's fabulous. That was awesome. Like a hydr, like full of hydrogen or something yeah. like that. That's fabulous. Um,
1: maybe base that for you. What's the biggest goal for you for the rest of your career for the next twenty years, or the next ten, or whatever it's gonna be. <laughs>
0: Yeah, next forty. Space, I doubt it will be anywhere close to those numbers. Um, I would be proud if I could uh, invest in in people in my organization now on, on the fund side that will continue to carry on maybe a legacy of how I think about investing, how I think about partnering with companies, and helping them understand our views, firmly communicating that, but then also be willing to stand by the side of these companies to. To be supportive in in executing on the business, I think that would be the proud outcome for me.
2: Legacy, I yeah, Alex. What about you? Um, my yeah, I mean, for me, I, I love what I do, and I, you know, I don't, you know, hope to retire. Uh, you know, I I really intellectually enjoy it. I feel like um, I, I want to do investing where it keeps all of our learning curves steep and you know that that's intellectually stimulating for me and you know as Bizard said I, I think I, what what I want to put more effort into is growing um, I'm honored to work with a great group of people at Sarissa and sort of you know kind of growing growing uh, growing everyone together so we really can you know can can have a bunch of people that can that, that can do this sort of thing um, the type of investing we do at Sarissa it's not it's not, very, it's not like scalable. like you can't do a 100 of these as one at once, as I think as I would, would, would agree. It just sort of <laughs> there is, I don't know, hours in the day and days in the week. Um, but you know, I think that the more people that are holding management teams to account, the better off we all are as a society, society the country, the industry, everything. So just, you know, more people thinking like that is always good
1: yeah well terrific Bezat and Alex thanks so much for joining us always insightful entertaining and highly illuminating really appreciate thank, it thank, nice. thank you
2: thank you Yaron for having me thank you Bezat for, for, for joining us. wonderful speaking with you guys and health and happiness to everyone likewise nice, nice to be on the call with you Yaron thanks for inviting me
0: thanks for joining us stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights